And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dispute, no small dissension and dispute with them, they went down to Jerusalem to be the rest of that. But don't you hate it when someone comes along like, like happened here and, and says to you, let me tell you something. And then they go on to tell you how it is, like they're the expert and you're just lucky they're there. I know that makes my hackles go up like, who are you to tell me? Regardless of who's right and wrong, no one likes to be told they're wrong. And that's what's going on in the opening verses of Acts 15 here. Certain people, there's they referred to, those who consider themselves experts in the law, no doubt, were coming to set the apostles, Paul and Barnabas, and the poor misguided church they were pastoring, teaching straight. Can, can you imagine the audacity of this? No, 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 don't listen to these two. You have to be circumcised. It's the law, it's scripture. You can't argue with that. Paul and Barnabas are misleading you. Well, guess what? These certain people's version of what was scriptural was much different from Paul and Barnabas' Barnabas's version of what was scriptural. Well, how can that be? Well, keep in mind, the devil often used scripture also. Scriptural arguments to deceive people. He did it with Eve, and he tried it with Jesus. Scripture can be twisted by self-appointed experts to see what they want to see. Turns out, of course, that Paul and Barnabas were right. Salvation is by grace, not by cutting. But it would take a conference in Jerusalem and a whole lot of debate and prayer for the combined apostles to finally answer that question once and for all, at least for those who were willing to accept the authority of the apostles of Jesus Christ. Yet the disputes continue. As long as there are two people left in the world, there's going to continue to be theological debates. So who wins? Usually the one who is seeking the Lord and is humble who is willing to be taught and to hear before they open their mouth to cause strife. Sometimes that means just walking away, as Paul and Barnabas would end up doing from each other by the end of this chapter, where they started so unified in this battle against the proponents of the law. Verse 39, Acts 15, they had a sharp... Did I miss that one? Apparently I did. Anyway, verse 39 says, They had a sharp disagreement. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left. They parted company. I hope you had a chance to read this chapter in preparation for today's message. It always makes the messages so much more meaningful and saves me from having to delay a lot of groundwork before I get to the meat as we work through the book of Acts here. Um, find Acts chapter 15. I'm going to read the first few paragraphs, if you would please. Acts 15, verse 1. We already read a little bit in our opening verse there. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, an understatement saying they had a pretty good blowout here, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way, 
by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. Verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all the things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up and said, it's necessary to circumcise them and command them to keep the law of Moses. Now the apostles and the elders came together, the apostles and the elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, or dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did us. It made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you test God by putting the yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we are able to bear? But we believe that through grace, through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. It's amazing, really, that the little, there are literal Pharisees in the church. Like the Pharisees are still dogging us here, which they really are today. They just go by different names, and they're still causing much dispute. And one of the things I've been discovering as we work our way through the book of Acts is that there was really a lot of conflict. Conflict, disagreement, division in the early church. It's ironic that we so often hold up the early church as a perfect model of oneness and unity that we're keen to emulate in today's church, which you've probably noticed has a lot of conflict also. But from the very get-go, the church has been conflicted. The very first time the notion of a church was even conceived, even mentioned of by Jesus when he told Peter that his confession of him being the Messiah, the Son of the living God, would be the rock his church would be built on, it was immediately followed with strife. The very next thing that happens in Matthew's Gospel, right after Peter's confession, the church foundation confession, he proceeds to tell Jesus how it is. No, 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 Lord, let me tell you. You're not going to die. This will never happen to you. Don't even say that. So what happens? Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, this will never happen to you. Jesus was talking about having to go to Jerusalem to die. He said, no, don't, don't say that. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. If you're not concerned with the things of man, but God, but with man, you're a stumbling block to me. I don't want to hear Jesus rebuke me like that as a mouthpiece of Satan. Yet I have to wonder how often I need to be rebuked or we need to be rebuked because we're too busy espousing our passionately held beliefs instead of listening when the Lord is trying to tell us something. How many times the Spirit has tried to teach or warn us through the words of another, but we refuse to hear because we're convinced that we know better. No better than the speaker are too busy formulating our response. We all do it. Someone's talking to us, and we're thinking about, how am I going to respond to this? What am I going to say next? How can I one-up them? I want to hear what people have to say, especially if they're spirit-filled. It doesn't take education to speak for Jesus. It takes a heart that will listen, and that is connected to a mouth that will speak when it's time to speak. It's been my experience that the wisest men on earth are the ones with the fewest words. Quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. James, the pastor of the very first church, would write this, and with good reason. 
Well, if only we could be like the only church and live in perfect harmony. Well, James pastored that first church, and he didn't write this admonition to be quick to listen and slow to speak from a quiet office in a quiet neighborhood surrounded by a church full of perfect harmony. He wrote it as a beleaguered pastor who was no doubt exhausted by always having to be the peacekeeper amongst those who should have been encouraging and blessing one another instead of arguing and competing to be heard and get their fair share or whatever. Even when there's only one church in Jerusalem, there's strife. And as you recall, that strife started between the different sects of Judaism who were coming to faith in Jesus, and as the church began branching out in the surrounding nation, as the filthy Gentiles and barbarians started getting saved and being part of the church and blasted with the Holy Spirit, the causes for division and debate only grow more frequent and sharp. And that's what's going on here. It's all coming to a head. These debates follow the disciples and the apostles around from city to city as the gospel spreads. Something has to be done. It can't go on like this. So Paul and Barnabas show up in Jerusalem and press James for an answer to this debate. What are we going to do here? You need to, you need to pull together a committee. We need to do something. We need to stop this division. Is salvation by keeping the law, by circumcision, or is it by grace in Jesus Christ? It can't be both. Well, then the wishy-washy Peter finally takes a stand, provoked by the Pharisaic believers, to finally settle in his own mind what the Lord had been teaching him from the start. And he ends up really echoing the Lord's very words to the, in response to the Pharisees, who are now believers. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting the yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither you nor our fathers were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be saved in the same manner as they. These words of truth spoken in power get everyone's attention. The leaders of the church have finally gotten to a place where they're ready to stop arguing, to stop clinging to their own pet theologies, to stop trying to appease others, and collectively listen to truth. So Pastor James presides over this, what's called the Jerusalem Council, of elders and apostles who finally shut up long enough, who finally stopped trying to appease the religious and influential members of the church, and look at what the Holy Spirit's been doing while they've been busy arguing and acting indignant because whatever point of view rubbed them wrong was happening on that particular day. They just had to stop and listen to one another and to God. And all the multitude kept silent, verse 12, and listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. The multitude kept silent and listened. That's perhaps the most profound statement in the entire book of Acts. The whole direction and makeup of the church pivots on these words. They kept silent and listened. They listened to what the Holy Spirit was saying. They listened to those who were speaking for the Lord. They listened to what Scripture was really saying. They listened to the witness of what was happening all around them. The strife and debate wasn't there in the first place because God was confusing or because the Holy Spirit was being unfair or inconsistent in whom he chose to make his dwelling in. The requirements for receiving grace were the same across the board. 
You had to believe in the Son of God. It's the only way to be saved from death and hell. You had to repent of your sins, ask forgiveness, and be baptized in water and the Holy Spirit. And not necessarily all in that order, which is another cause of great debate. So the problem wasn't a lack of direction from the Scriptures or from the Lord. Salvation had always been by faith. Faith in that which was to come or faith in that which has come, the Messiah. But the problem they had, which is the same problem the church has today, is that the church is full of people. People who insist on their ways, that their ways of understanding things are the only way. People who are arrogant, deceived, weak, damaged, or unforgiving. People who can't see beyond their own noses. And people who refuse to listen but demand to be heard. Everyone has issues. Everyone's going to make mistakes. Everyone's going to be offended or take offense at times, misspeak or mishear. That's human nature. And that's why we so desperately need the Lord. And that's why we need the church to do its best to act like the Lord, no matter how many times we fail or fall. Neither we nor the church will be in perfect harmony all the time with one another or, or even ourselves until we're all seated together at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And everything, at that point, everything that is not true, pure, and holy will fall away like the scales from the eyes of the blind man that Jesus healed. Then we'll see clearly instead of through a mere dimly. We really don't have a clue right now. For we see in a mere dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. Then I'll understand, I'll understand the Lord just like he understands me already. So before you choose to die on a hill, make sure the hill that you're defending is worth the strife and division that you're creating with your swinging sword. Honestly, there are very few things that I'm willing to say absolutely I will not entertain another notion on anymore when it comes to the Lord. The word of God is true and eternal. Jesus is the risen Lord and salvation comes from no other. The Holy Spirit is real and dwells in us, giving us eternal life. And God the Father loves me. And I'm supposed to share the gospel and make disciples of all nations. And I'm supposed to love my brothers and sisters. That's about the sum of it. The only other thing I really know for sure, and that I'm more certain of every day, is that I still have a lot to learn. We all do. And will until that day when we see him face to face and know him as we are known by him. And the longer I walk with Jesus, the more I realize how clueless I really am. But I also believe that makes me a better person. If nothing else, it makes me easier to be around. It gives me an opportunity to share Jesus and what he's done for me. I don't come across as knowing everything. I'm going to tell you. It's called humility. Peter would write later, Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. A humble person doesn't leave awake in their wake. A person doesn't leave awake of offended and angry brothers and sisters behind them. And the unsaved will be drawn to them. Even Paul, the greatest theologian who ever lived, whom God used to explain the mysteries of the kingdom, 
as he opened his eyes to see them. Paul, who knew the Hebrew scriptures of prophets and the law like few ever, ever have or would, even he had a, only a couple of hills he would die on. And he wouldn't claim any great wisdom or eloquence, no glory or credit for himself, no great strength or infallibility. For I determined to know nothing of you, among you, he said, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I don't know anything. I'm not going to come to you in wisdom or eloquence. I'm just a guy who loves the Lord. But what I do know is Jesus Christ is real. He's the Son of God, and he was crucified for me. And I'm with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. Humility. Paul stood firm in Jesus and found his only true wisdom, found his fire and his passion, the unshakable, inarguable, this I will swing my sword and hold my shield high for, truth worth dying for on the cross of Jesus Christ. The Christ who died for, who died for him and redeemed him of his former arrogance. Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He even says later, I had a lot to be proud of. A Jew of Jews, a Hebrew of Hebrews, dedicated on the eighth day, on and on and on. Taught at the feet of Gamaliel. That was it, man. But now I'm nothing. It's Christ who lives in me. Lord, give me the humility and the passion of Paul that I would know which to bring out and when without having to be blinded, stoned, beaten, and chained to earn it and learn it, like Paul was. The fires of the refiner are often hot, but they're not nearly as hot as the fires of hell. I'll take the refining. And if we don't learn humility, the Lord is more capable, more than capable, of teaching it to us. Often it's just a case of leaving us on our own for a while to flounder. Show us how weak and foolish we are when we start thinking that we're somebody special. And deserve anything more than what Jesus paid the price to give us. Grace. Start taking credit for anything the Lord has done for you. Or through you. Anything he's blessed you with. Or start telling God how it's going to be. My will be done. And watch how fast you fall. None of us is infallible. And we'll all have bad days and make mistakes. And even misjudge people. Only God can see the heart. Even the great apostle Paul took serious issue with their former companion, John Mark, causing him to dispute heatedly with his partner, his friend and his brother Barnabas. Barnabas had called Paul to come over there. You need to help me. We've got a group of believers here. These Gentiles are coming to Christ, and I heard you were called to, to minister to the Gentiles. Come and help me out here. They were partners. They were fast friends. They went to Jerusalem together to settle this issue of grace versus the law, but now they're fighting over Mark, who would end up writing the gospel. We're going to pick it up in verse 36. Mark and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, maybe Mark too, are still in Jerusalem, probably enjoying the fellowship of the remaining 12 apostles and the new harmony and agreement that they found in their settling of this, this issue of law versus grace. And they decide, let's make a trip and go visit the churches that we've We've, we've ministered in the, in the past here across the empire. Sure, sounds like a great idea. Let's take Mark. Or not. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit our brethren in every city where we've preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. 
But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia. I mean, this guy deserted us. Why wouldn't we take him? And had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and went to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So the peacemakers in the end needed to separate themselves because they couldn't agree. Paul, Barnabas, and Mark would all later be reconciled. Paul would recognize what an asset Mark was, but it would take some time and some humbling on all their parts. It would take them being willing to look each other, at each other through the eyes of Christ, to forgive and listen to reason and truth, and it would take some refining. No doubt they all had something to learn. <coughs> it actually gives me hope to know that even the great theologian Paul could perhaps misjudge a person and act in such a stubborn, stubborn way, demanding his own way like a little child, and yet God used their disagreement and their agreement to disagree to send them in different directions and reach twice as many people. And there's no record that Paul or Barnabas badmouthed each other, or they tried to undercut one another in this split. They just had to go and do what they believed was right for them and the Lord and his plan for them. Disagreements and disputes are sure to happen. So maybe this is just a good lesson on how to disagree without trying to destroy one another, without burning any bridges. Yes, Paul probably was holding a grudge against Mark, but he would get over it in time and be reconciled to the one who would become a huge asset to him and the church. Now, I'm no expert in peacemaking. I'm just gleaning what I can from the story here in Acts. This is what fell in my lap when I started studying. But what I do know is there's going to be contentions and the strife in the church, but we can't give up on one another. We're family and we need each other. That's what the Lord told me when I was preparing this. There's going to be strife, but don't give up. We need each other. Especially as the days grow darker and the causes for division and strife are ever more prevalent. There's more and more pressures going on here. You can say a lot about this past and current season that this generation has been in and many of them would be argued with in mixed company as soon as you said them. But the one thing that can't be argued about this season is that it's been contentious. It's been contentious politically, culturally, spiritually, both nationally and on a worldwide scale. It's, it's so much of what is going on or being foisted on us affects us on a global scale like never before. Because the world's getting smaller and as populations get bigger and the connectivity grows at breakneck speeds. The enemy is tearing down everything he can. <coughs> Economies, nations, borders, histories, traditions, families, individualism, personal rights and identities, churches and relationships. Everyone's being turned against everyone else and lumped into groups of us versus them. And those who dare try to have an independent thought are slammed, shamed, and silenced. Why? Why would the enemy want to create such chaos? Seemed like he had a pretty good setup here already, running this world into the ground. So why would he want to destroy and cause all this strife? Well, the short answer is obvious. He hates us all. 
especially those who know the Son of God. But the larger plan and purpose is that he wants to tear everything down that could possibly hinder him from seizing complete control of the world as a whole. And to destroy the people of God once and for all, Israel and the church, which has to be done before he can seize total control. For the first time in history, the entire world is in a position where we could theoretically be one economy, one governing body, have one religion, one standard set of laws and regulations. And we've already seen how easy it is to get everyone to comply with what would have previously seemed overreaching and intrusively untenable demands. I mean, we basically lived under martial law, dictating our movements, and Sharia law as far as how we wear and cover our face. We faced communist-style shortages while being policed by Nazi-style by our neighbors who were encouraged to tell on us if we didn't do things they were suggesting we do. Any dissension against the mandates. And it was all justified and being justified Marxist-style as being for the greater good. It's all coming together nicely in this season of pandemic hysteria. And it will continue to be pushed in the name of climate emergencies and social justice causes. We've traded away all our freedoms for promised security. And we let fear rule the day. Well, fear doesn't rule me, which is why I'm always in trouble, I guess. And that's why the enemy hates God's people. Because there's no fear in perfect love. And perfect love is what we have. First John 4.18, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves torment. Everyone who fears has not been made perfect in love. And now we're supposed to be okay with having our gender neutralized <coughs> and our skin color being the sole thing that determines whether we're a victim or an oppressor. We just rolled over and allowed private businesses, mostly small businesses, to be destroyed, our churches and schools to be closed, and now our speech, as far as speaking out or questioning any of that, is being monitored and regulated. And we're all supposed to be okay with all of that and just submit. Well, I'm sorry, but I'm not, and I won't. I was just sitting here during worship thinking, how would we do church underground? <laughs> how, how disturbing is it that I have to think that as a pastor while we're doing worship? Because it seems like it's just around the corner. And I see this all as a perfect setup for the Antichrist to seize power. To just slide right in and declare, here I am to save the day. Everything's chaos, everything's a mess, but I can fix it. Just listen to me. Yes, sir. My point is, if we want to have any hope of countering these plans, the plans of the enemy, or at the very least to survive as a church and leave this world with our souls intact and headed for glory, we need to stop rising to the bait and bickering among ourselves. That was the hardest part of the last year, arguing about should we have church or not have church? Should we wear a mask or not have a church? How close should we sit these together? How much hand sanitizer should we have sitting out? I mean, come on, people. We need to stop worrying about things and theologies and mandates and whatever that in the end won't even matter. And keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and treat one another with love so that all men will know that we are his disciples. 
the Titanic is going down and we're complaining about the music the band is playing as she sinks. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles. This is the final decision from the council in Jerusalem who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. That's what came of all the arguments, all the debates, all the dissension and division. When all came together, the council of the elders and the, and the, the apostles, this is what they came up with. Stop troubling those who are turning to God, bugging them about all this details, all this theology that didn't even work for us, keeping the law, and let them turn to God. Have a relationship with Jesus. Pay attention to the Holy Spirit. See what he's doing. The apostles of Jesus Christ, the brother of Jesus Christ, James, those who walked with the Lord, lived with him, who were still guided and empowered by him through his Holy Spirit. This is what they decided was important and necessary for those who are coming to faith in Jesus Christ and being baptized in his spirit as a result. Right at the top of this Supreme Court holy decision was the admonition to stop troubling the Gentiles with all your nonsense about the law and the deeper things of God and let them turn to God. Shut up and listen to what the Spirit says. He's telling know-it-alls. And open your eyes to see what he's doing among those you deem ignorant. I know so many Christians who have lost their zeal to go forth and plunder the enemy's territory because some well-meaning, more learned and mature Christian made them feel stupid or ill-equipped. If you know Jesus is Lord, it might have been delivered from your bondages to sin and death. If you have the spirit of the living God residing in your heart, you're a warrior. You are the Lord's champion. And you have a testimony in a name that is above all names. It says in Revelation, they overcame the dragon, the beast, the enemy, by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony. It's not your theology, it's your story. That's the gospel. Don't let anything or anyone stop you. Anyone who comes against you and troubles you in that regard is an agent of the devil. Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. For you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And we need to strive for holiness. The apostles didn't just things have things to say to the religious busybodies and the experts in the law of all things godly. From this council, they had the final answer on just what is expected of those who call Jesus Lord. They provide an exhaustive list, surprisingly short exhaustive list, of everything the new believer should do to keep on track and keep from getting sucked back into the clutches of the enemy. And they all had to do with opening yourself up to the enemy's control and destructive designs for us in the world. Abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled and from blood. These all had to do with idol worship, false gods, putting other things before the Lord. I don't need to explain all that to you. You've been around and know the background of these admonitions. But applying them to our own lives is a key. And I'll leave that between you and the Lord at this point. We need to stop shooting at each other from our favorite theological bunkers. We need to love one another, encourage one another, humbly and sincerely as we all struggle to navigate these evil days together. Because we're no longer citizens of this world. 
We need to start heeding the warnings of God that he's given us from those who are shutting their mouths long enough to hear from the Lord, who see what the Spirit is doing. And we need to heed the warnings of those who are trying to save us from the fire. There's a few faithful servants out there, a few people that we consider prophets, who are speaking truth, who are trying to warn us, keep us on the right track. Jeremiah's. We can't just keep fighting with those who are trying to save us from the fire or just go back to sleep like everything's fine. We need to stop worrying about things in the end won't matter. Keep our eyes on Jesus. We need to stop being the Pharisees and be the Jeremiah's and we need to hear the Jeremiah's. I said this the very first week this pandemic business started. The Lord doesn't do anything without telling the servants. If this was from him, he would let us know. This is from the enemy, and he's using it to destroy us. But the Lord is telling us how to withstand this. Because it's going to get worse where it gets better. I hate to tell you. But we're not citizens of this world. We can overcome. I worked with a guy for several years who had a propensity to argue. And I wasn't shy about arguing with him. In fact, I argued with him a lot. He was pretty stubborn, and apparently so am I. But he always wanted to act like he knew everything. And he always wanted to take credit for what other people were doing, including me. And uh, I had a problem with that. So anyway, he also had a fondness for beer and cigarettes. And uh, one day the combination got him in trouble. Actually, more than once, but on this particular day. And I actually first heard this on the news, and I realized it was him, and then later I heard the story from him. He was sitting in his recliner one day at home after having drank several beers, smoking a cigarette, and he fell asleep, or more like passed out. He says, I remember waking up and thinking it's really hot, so I, I just went to bed. And the next thing you know, someone's trying to drag him out of bed. And he's trying to fight him off. He's fighting with him until <laughs> he realizes that this is, his room is full of smoke and this is a firefighter who's trying to save his life. And, uh, what happened was he had fallen asleep with a cigarette. The cigarette had started his recliner on fire, which woke him up. So instead of trying to figure out why his chair is so hot, he just goes in his bedroom and goes to bed. Fortunately, a neighbor saw the smoke pouring out of the windows of his house and called 911. Of course, when the firefighters showed up, first thing they're going to do is make sure nobody's in there. They find him in bed and try and drag him out, and he's fighting with them. They rescued him anyways and uh, saved his house. Did he learn? Not really. A few years later, he was found dead on his bathroom floor in his mid-40s. Died of a heart attack after years of heavy smoking and drinking. Despite the many warnings his body and his friends were giving him, he had never gone to a doctor. He refused to go because he thought he knew better. So things are heating up. So maybe instead of going back to sleep or fighting with those who are trying to save us, those we should be working with, we should pay attention to why things are getting hot. It's not because our neighbors need us to straighten them out. We need to start by looking at ourselves. Humility. Get some.
forgive me if I was a little raw and disjointed this morning. I did two funerals this week, so I had to crank out a sermon pretty quick. Pray the, pray the Lord speaks what you needed to hear. And uh, I did a funeral for Wanda and a dear old friend, and for Maggie, also a dear old friend, Rick Terrio's mother, both of whom were ladies whom I did worship alongside of back when I did more worship leading than I did preaching. And uh, Funerals are always difficult, but it was just such a time of, because I know all their families, they minister to their kids, and, and those kids are growing up now, and all the different friends that are friends of all of us, I can't think of the word I want to use there, um, mutual friends, that's the big word I was looking for, and how, how, how so many lives are intertwined, and how such what seemed little to you things that are have such a big influence you know going down the line and it doesn't seem like you're really doing much and then years later you know you see someone just walking with and, and worshiping and living with and the Lord and, and thinking I had I had a little voice in that a little part of that and, and and it's also a good reminder of how short this life is when you say goodbye to two friends. And, um, but my time is precious. And it's also a sad time when you see families, certain people might not be there because they're not getting along with other parts of the family. Like, really? I don't have time for that. Life is too precious and too short. And uh, it really all affects eternity. But I'm rambling, sorry. That's what I do. That's why I write my sermons out. <laughs> Otherwise, my whole message would be like this. just want to say one more thing. Um, as soon as I remember what it was. <laughs> oh, I forgot it. Had to do with the kids. Oh. Time is short, time is precious. And all those people, you know, first of all, being asked for the privilege of doing a funeral for someone's loved one, for their mother or their wife, and having their kids, being able to comfort them and their grandkids, and because you've had a relationship with them over the years, even if they haven't seen you for years, how does that happen? It happens by us being humble and approachable and loving. It's loving people. We come across as harsh or judgmental or contentious. That stuff's gone. We miss those opportunities. We have to be approachable. We have to be real. But we have to speak truth at the same time. That's try to, the way I try to live my life. Here, at work, my family. Sometimes it gets me in trouble, but truth is always the best policy in the long run, especially if it's spoken in love and knowing when to not say anything. So now's that time. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for meeting us here this morning. Thank you for your love and your trust and your faith in us, Lord. And uh, help us to grow in our faith in you, our trust in you, and our love for you and your people. And Lord, that's really what it is, is trusting you enough to just love people, to speak truth in a way that they will hear. We come across as humble and, and real and approachable. Yeah, just as you were. You never compromised. You were never deceitful. But you never hurt people. Yeah. When you were lifted up, all were drawn to you. And that's why. You are love. Yeah. Lord, as we go forth in this in this season, help us to walk humbly with you to stand strong and, and see through the hysteria, to not succumb to the fears, the temptations to argue and, and fight and kick and scream, just to firmly and stand, resolutely stand our ground. You know, this is, this is my God, this is my faith, this is who I am. Yeah, be happy to share it with you. And if not, Maybe later. <laughs> Lord, we pray for this nation. Pray for the world. Pray for a great outpouring of your Holy Spirit. Pray, Lord, that we would have the courage to look inside of, of us and uh, heed the warnings, hear your voice, make the corrections that need to be made, and uh, repent. Repentance always starts within the circle that we draw around ourselves. love you, Lord. We be prayed and thanks. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Anything else? That Rick's going to be here next week. Speaking of Rick, our former worship leader, because Dana's, what are you doing next week? <laughs> Besides drooling on yourself. Going to Bozeman. Dana's going to Bozeman next week. So Rick's going to be here. And uh, if you want to go with him, no, just <laughs> talk to him. You should let your family know. Brian to you and um, pour out your healing spirit on him and, and uh, comfort him Lord reveal yourself to him and, and be with his family and uh, let there be a complete healing and a 
incredible testimony of your love and power. And Lord, we uh, just pray against the darkness of the forces and whatever evil it was that was perpetrated on him, that they would be found out, that the light would shine on them, and uh, that would be stopped and, and hindered from, from doing further harm. And continue to pray your blessing and protection on this, on this community, on this valley. Yeah. Lift up that firefighter that was injured a couple weeks ago also near Joliet. And pray for his continued healing and comfort. And just uh, that you would indeed keep working in, in this community, in this county. And, uh, draw men to you. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs>